Everyday Design, the podcast that talks to you about design in your everyday life. I am urbanist Rachel Fisher. And I'm interior designer Abigail Hall. And this month, Rachel, I have been swanning around London, as I love to do. And I swanned in the direction of the Victoria and Albert Museum. Now. Yes. Great. How surprising that I did that. Because there was a, (laughs) a little show on. I don't think it's been advertised that much. The Dior Couture Show. I can think of nothing more appropriate. I, I was there, at the hammering on the door. Amazing. Um, in all sincerity, I actually went and got the timings wrong, and the security guard did have to turn me away. <laughs> Excellent. Which is really classic, Abby. Um, when I finally was allowed in, um, past the security checks, etc., etc., as much as I was overwhelmed by the contents of the show, and truly... The range of dresses that there are, the the outfits. I could talk about that all day long. I've in the past talked about how I'm not a fashionista, so I would embarrass myself massively if I did talk about the fashion. But it was the staging of it that really caught my attention. Now you the the show is done in some galleries. It's a new space to me. Now you know about the V&A, the recent extension that they've had done, and the courtyard. Yeah. And this gallery space is underneath that courtyard. And you've actually got a double height space under there. Oh, wow. I haven't, I haven't been in there. Well, you must go just for the space alone. And this is, this is what I want to talk about in terms of this month's eye. You transition through this double height space. And rather than it being huge, expansive room after huge, expansive room, they've shaped the space beautifully and you transition each room is either a black palette or a white palette and i'm not talking about the dresses that are within it Mm. it's the background and there's an architectural principle of feeling cocooned in a small small space and that amplifies so when you walk into a larger space that's light it overwhelms it it overwhelms it it overwhelms you and that is exactly what this show did. So you had this very intimate experience where you were incredibly up close, one-on-one, with dresses from 1945, from Dior's New Look. Obsessed with detail, looking at millinery, looking at the finishing, the, the waists. The tiny waspy waists. The tiny waspy waists. I said I yeah, wouldn't yeah. talk about the fashion, but of course that's what I'm obsessed by. And a few metres later, your attention is caught because then you go into this white space Mm. double height and because these are new gallery spaces you haven't got classic architecture that you're used to that we're used to with the vna particularly the vna but what the show designers had done which i thought was so clever is in each room they had very very quietly created an architectural aesthetic that complemented the dresses and the thing that really caught my attention, there's a, there's a couple of things that I'll mention to you because really I'm a bore about this and even you will tell me to shut <laughs> up. They had wanted to create architecture that was in a way in keeping with the period, periods of the dresses that they're showing. And in one of them, they'd created this panelling 
So it seemed to be a French chateau boudoir. Right. When you looked at the panels up close, what they were was relatively thin, no more than eight, ten mil. I think it was acrylic, a matte acrylic, but it looked like it had been 3D printed or 3D etched. Hmm. And because of the way the light played on it, you had this feeling of it being this incredibly ornate panelled room with these tiny, tiny shallow panels. panels. Amazing. And this is something I'm absolutely going to steal. <laughs> and, and there's... I, 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 the only thing I can recommend, listeners, is that you go and see this, be in awed at the dresses and the fashion, and then find yourself touching no. a plastic wall panel and, and do the security guards call you out on this is this no. something that they're comfortable with no i i think i must have been one of the only people to be kind of stroking the, the wall, wall. <laughs> Excellent. and then out of this huge room with with mirrored ceilings and these fantastic panels then you go into a dark dark corridor lower ceiling very very reflective material mm. and then back out into a circular room where the ceiling is adorned with paper flowers as if you are in some hanging gardens of paper Babylon. <laughs> I absolutely, I, I have to go again because I felt I neither looked at the interior styling of it or the dresses equally because You're too I was busy. so between the two. So do you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of this kind of urban design principle of having one space lead onto the other space and opening it out into yes. kind of surprising vistas and, 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 and the idea of delight. I was delighted. <laughs> Good. I must go. Really? So this uh, kind of brings me onto my this month eye, which is a this month you should for me. Um, I, this month I've been feeling a little bit homesick. So Aww. I've been missing. I've been missing Austin. I've been missing my hometown, which, given that I'm left there twenty something years ago, you would think that I would be over this. But anyway, I've been missing Austin, and my uh, normally very terrible Facebook algorithm, which just sends me uh, sperm donors from Denmark and and other things. What are you liking on I, there? It's. I think they just know my age. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so um, so so the Facebook algorithm had re- recommended to me um, a exhibition at the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas in Austin, and it is indeed a exhibition called "The Rise of Everyday Design." The art out there. We we are we are influencing, influencing internationally beyond our wildest dreams. So the arts and crafts movement in Britain and America. So it got a write up in the uh, Wall Street Journal, which we can link to. Um, but it was really, really interesting reading the write-up in the Rawls- in the Wall Street Journal, and, and it made me wish that I could go home to the Harry Ransom Center, which is a place that I spent an inordinate amount of time for a young teenager to be spending in a research institution, because I was cool. Again, I've said this many times, I want to go back in time and meet young you. <laughs> I don't know that we would have been friends. No. Well, no, I think... Maybe, maybe, maybe. Um, so yeah, so this so this is a really interesting exhibition. And if you're in Austin, because I know we have some listeners in Austin, hi mom. Um, <laughs> it's a really good. It's it looks like a really good exhibition, and it's charting the rise of the arts and crafts movement in both Britain and America, starting with Ruskin, who basically kind of yep. started the whole process, um, and then moving forward both in Britain via people like William Morris, but also in America by people with people like Stickley. Um, and this idea of the democratization of design, which is something we've talked about quite a lot and we will talk about um, later in this, in this episode. Um, 
But I'm just interested in how we reflect on the past and past design trends to think more about our present and then potentially about the future of our of, of design. This is really interesting. And we do and we do talk about this actually quite a lot because we'll see a piece or a new building and we'll get talking about, well, I like this because Yeah. And, and so, you're the encyclopedia of of well, yes, of what knowledge. Of course you like this because and I'll say I do like this because and actually, that's what the arts and craft movement does because it was so diverse and it cherry picked the best bits. It did, mm. and you know the best bits of the of the medieval period to the present. Mm. Um, and and it's interesting because it kind of coincides with a fun little quiz that I'll uh, I'll repost as well that I took um, that Historic England has put out, which is doing a little a little quiz about the kinds of buildings you like and then it tells you what your architectural style is. And it asks very basic questions to do with what palette of colours do you like. Do you enjoy and... wood panelling? Exactly. And I came out with Victorian. Yeah, you said you were surprised Shocked. by that. You live so, in a Victorian property. I do, but I always think that I live in a Victorian property because I can't afford a Georgian one. <laughs> Whereas mine was varied. Yes. Which actually technically would make me arts and crafts. It would. It would. Cherry didn't, picking. Didn't the tell best. me that. No. Did it though? No. No. no I Although I was, I was being facetious when I was answering it, going, good luck with this quiz. See what you're going to do with these answers. But I don't feel like there are that many arts and crafts buildings in the UK. Whereas the Americans really took arts and crafts into their architecture. And you think about Frank Lloyd Wright and you think about the work that he did really driving the arts and crafts movement and then driving that forward into modernism. Was that to do with where the economy was growing, though, and the wealth that there was and the use of materials, using more substantial materials that last? Maybe. Maybe. That's a really good question. Well, we live in Victorian England. Well, we live in the Victorian houses that haven't had to be pulled down because they were insufficient for human habitation. Like, so, yes. so they don't. Yeah. They not all the Victorian buildings survived. The back-to-backs, for example, have gone. Thankfully, most of them. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Um, so anyway, so so I was reading this review and it made me uh, it made me homesick, Aww. but it also made me kind of. It was interesting because it felt because it, it is this Anglo-American movement. It did kind of make me, I, I don't know, it sort of spoke to both sides of the things, of, of the places that I call home. It did, and I also had a funny reaction to it when you shared it with me, because I've been talking about a particular design philosophy for really quite a long time now, and you and I have shared thoughts, and we've formulated words and phrases and expressions which we feel are unique to us, because we feel like this isn't something other people are talking about. And when I saw this article, I kind of went, oh God, um... We're either, we're either a zeitgeist or, oh God, we're talking about what everyone else is talking about. Are we on a bandwagon? And then I thought, no, this is good. That It means that what we're saying, it validates what we're saying. It validates that there are other people who've gone long, long before us. Of course. Who were having the same thoughts and values about design and the about, impact design has. And this is all part of the kind of longer tradition of design thinking and mm. what design what the design process can bring to people's lives which is about you know in your phrase this is about designing happiness this is about what are the things that you um value in your life and then how does that express itself through the material things that you choose to surround yourself with and then how in turn do you resonate with that and it amplify your well-being and your happiness indeed yeah which i feel like is an excellent segue into good design bad design haha <laughs> yes and when I tried to explain this to you, Rachel, I, I struggled with the wording. So I, 
I hope I am going to be able to articulate this. This entire good design, bad design for me was um, prompted by an Instagram post um, by Oscar de la Renta. They were in the process of refurbing their Paris store. And I, it, it's such a cute little ditty. Their architect um, basically called kind of the, the, the owner, the person who's responsible for the store, who's in New York at the time, and basically said, yeah, no, y- you're going to need to come to the store. And uh, this individual was in New York and thought there's got to be a really blinking good reason I'm going to get on a plane and go to Paris. Mm. Imagining that it's asbestos or it's it, you know it's something that justifies the project being delayed. Indeed. You know, you, you're about to tell me the project's going to be delayed by four months. What freaking excuse have you got? Yeah. And as he said, he came up the stairs, he walked into a room and a wall had been removed and there was a 10 foot by 20 foot picture an oil painting and it was of uh, as he described it elaborately coffered dressed 17th century marquis and assorted couturiers entering the city of jerusalem what that's what he saw it was a huge 17th century painting that had been in New York. in Paris. In Paris. Sorry, I was like, New York was not really doing <laughs> It yeah. was a repro, if it was there. Right. And it was, it was pasted, it was literally glued to a wall, and there had been just some dry lining, some plasterboard, put up in front of it. And the only thing that they can fathom, and this piece is now, it, it has to remain in situ, they, they believe it's impossible to move. Um, they think it's possible that during the war it was concealed to protect it, it's possible. That's some, always possible. It's possible some contractors. Do they know who did it? I'm going to post some information. There's a great article on it, and I'm going to post the information about it. Um, and it's going to be available to go and see. Oh, amazing. And it got me thinking about legacy. Mm. Now, this we, we can't suppose that this was someone's legacy, that they put it there with the intention of someone else finding it. Because in actual fact, this wall could have been demolished. If they hadn't been careful about it, someone could have just attacked that thing yeah. with a sledgehammer and gone straight through and never known until yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. they suddenly saw a fragment of canvas. And I was thinking about when we see, and we often, you often see it on the news, mm. Someone's redoing a bathroom or a kitchen and they strip away a bit of skirting board or a bit of old panelling and there's a lovely little note, you know, May 1976, whatever it was, family lived here. And it's a little time capsule. It's a little bit of design legacy that someone has left behind. And for me, this, this fabric, these layers that exist in our life, design layers... As much as we may strip them away because they don't suit us, there's this lovely warm feeling you get when you know something about the individual that created it. This reminds me of when we bought my house mm. and we were stripping back all the floor coverings of the 20th century, like all of them. And we get to- they just laid it one on top of another. Yeah. And, and all the wallpapers and all of these things. But we get to this one point where we're downstairs and um, there were these uh, Daily Mail uh, newspapers had been used as underlay. And we're sort of going through and, and we find this newspaper that is a double page spread of the death of John F. Kennedy. Oh my God. And it was just this whole, you know, and, and I'm kind of reading through this. And, and again, I think I've talked about my house before, but these were all soaked in dog urine. These were not things that we could say. No. Anyway, it was horrible. But we're, I'm finding these things. I was like, oh my goodness. And then 
I was stripping this away and I was like, okay, right, okay, so so 1964 is the last yeah. time. Yeah, so. um, and, then, and then upstairs, my husband finds one from the week that he was born um, in 1977. And, and it is the death of Elvis. Not since, so the headline, the, the, the first paragraph reads, not since the death of John F. Kennedy brackets just down the hall have we seen such an outpouring of grief and it was one of these things where sort of like it's these little conversations that you have with the past of the building i love that conversations with the past and it and it got me thinking i always say got me thinking but it does you were thinking i was thinking that when we do when we do work especially i think when you have a family it's so nice to involve people and to have the little etch the 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 notch the, on the door frame notch on the door frame the little the cat footprints in the concrete if it's outside mm. the the little little hints that you were there that who knows they are time capsules yeah. who knows who will ever find it possibly or if no they one. Know, or if they won't and it's bad design is thinking that no one will know or care because the reason it's newsworthy is people care and also because it's ephemeral. It wasn't meant to be yeah. necessarily found. It wasn't, this isn't a time capsule. This is something that you kind of did on a whim and maybe you yeah, didn't even for think a about it. Yeah, yeah, and maybe you didn't even think about you it. You happen to have a pen at hand so you just scroll something on the wall yeah. before it gets boxed in. And I, I just really, really like that. And I think from now on, I'm gonna be a bit more creative about a little, a little note that I secrete somewhere. Do you know? Yeah, yeah. Even if it's it's how many times have you given books to people and you just write a little gift? thing in the you internet. write a little thing in the front. But what about if you tell turn... you what those are the things that don't get Marie Kondoed away. That is absolutely true. But how about if you turn down your favorite page and just little, wrote a little note at the top and just wrote this was a bit I loved and thought of you. Oh, why not? Yeah, why not? Why don't we all apply that a little bit more? And as you say, you would never. Marie no, you can't do that. You also have to be very very patient. Because you do all these things and then wait and realise that no one's ever mentioned it. But that's the point. That is the point. But that is the point. Not not the book thing. But that that is the point. That actually, it, it, it is, you know, planting seeds for trees that you'll never see grow. Oh, I love that. That is legacy. That is legacy. And and you never know, behind uh, some dry lining, there might be a 17th century oil painting. I mean, and that, that, that would be the ideal. Yes. That would it, be the ideal. Only It would only happen to Oscar Villa, isn't it, right? Indeed. So my good design, bad design is kind of similar. Uh, similar yet different. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about public art and art in the public realm. Which I'm very passionate about. I So my first ever job was working for a charity that did public art in urban regeneration projects. So it did the uh, Bullring public art strategy um, in Birmingham. They did the Oracle at Reading. They also um, did the work that I was doing, which was much more about community engagement in public art on housing estates in East London. And am I right in thinking that there's specialist funding just for public so, realm art? Public realm being... But, uh, art in the space, public space. Yeah, exactly. um, not specific. So hmm. there's various cocktails of funding that you can... You know, the Arts Council does some... Um, you can I get ask some... that question because it feels for me like art is something that I appreciate so much when I go to squares, parks. So, and it's so easy as a as, as someone who works within with developers and with construction for that to be removed as 
it's too difficult, it's expensive. Yeah, so that can get value, you know, but what's known as value engineered yes. out. So but that it feels special to me. It feels mm. the thing that often brings it together. Yeah, and I and I think it depends on. So for me, that really depends on what you're trying to do with the art strategy for for the public space. And I think what's interesting is bad design for me is the incredibly obvious handprints oh, that the, you get. I just needed something, so no, no, I'll no. do this. Well, the kind of like the community has ownership of this, and we know that because we have handprints. Look, they've literally put their hands on it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a bit, Whereas it's a bit um, naive. Yeah, cave paintings. <laughs> I was just cave paintings. I'm massively undervaluing cave paintings. Massively yeah. undervaluing cave paintings, but still, cave paintings. Um, whereas for me, the stuff that I really kind of get excited about are things that are a bit mm, partly whimsical, but also that just engage you with that space. So, for example, there's a lot of um, uh, pianos in public spaces. So every time I walk through uh, St. Pancras in particular, Love this. you hear yes. people playing the piano. Oh. That is art in public spaces. And that is art that engages you both as somebody who's walking through, but also these random people, usually men, genuinely. I've started clocking this. I'm going to start paying attention to Pay attention. Now. Literally, I've been paying it. I have to go through St. Pancras quite a lot at the minute. And Almost always men. Do you think it's a confidence thing? I think it might be a confidence thing. And then I was walking through the other morning, saw a guy playing something badly, repeatedly, but interest, but but still, like I'm enjoying this. Keep walking. Saw a woman sitting at the uh, sitting on one of the piano benches. Another woman sitting next to her. They were just having a chat, and I was like, "Come on, ladies, play chopsticks." But what I love is you talk about this being public space, public realm yeah. art. But in those instances where the art is interactive, that's transcended the public space because when someone is absolutely great at it, it does get onto Facebook and you do see it, it does go viral because yeah. it does make people stop and say, oh, I'm in the presence of a, a maestro, maybe a bit generous. No, I know what you mean. And I, it's funny, I, do you remember there was, this, there was this YouTube clip of this really, really famous um, violinist who was playing like a busker in I think like a Washington subway or something. Yes, I do. And only this one child waited to listen to the I, whole thing. To the whole thing. And everybody else is rushing by. And you so and I sometimes think about that when I'm walking through. I think about that all the time. When I the tube um what what who sponsors those? It's Transport for London. Yes. And this the spots and I always think is that that person, that's not just a regular bus busker, that's, surely. That's, yeah, that's someone with a philharmonic or... Someone very special. Yeah, so and so I guess for me, the good public art good is, is art that engages you, but also reminds you of the place that you're in. So it doesn't need to be um, something like music, but you can also have, um, like, the cows. Yes. It's just, it's the kind of thing where you think, ooh, that's a bit different, that's a bit special. Um, and the stuff that I really don't enjoy is this kind of either a this very hackneyed, you know, ooh the community, and therefore it must be a bit shit, or ooh modernist abstract art. It's like, well, what what is that saying? What is that saying about the place? What is that saying about? And that's not that I don't like abstract art. I absolutely do. But like, you know, Brancusi is one of my favorite sculptors. But you sort of think. What is what is this piece of art saying about this place? So for me, good design is 
design that engages you, public art that engages you, that wants you to, to think about your experience of being in this place. And bad public art is public art that is there for the sake of it. Yeah, is there to fulfill some kind of Section 106 agreement. There we go. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. So with that happy note, we went somewhere that does have some public art outside. It is a lot of public art. There's a lot of public art around. The Design Museum in Holland Park, just off High Street Kensington. And we traipsed down there on a slightly blustery... Rainy. Blustery. Damp. (laughs) Yes, it was rainy and damp. (laughs) But it's February, let's not be surprised by this. Um, Sunday. It was a Saturday or Sunday. We went with, um, it wasn't just the two of us. Oh no. Because I think this is important because I think that we experience, we experience museums in different ways these days. We very much do. Me at Dior was just feeding my, and yes, I went with a friend, but I ditched her early so she didn't hold me back. Also while I'm fondling the wall, you know, if I get chucked out, I don't want her to be a, I mean, and it's hard to explain to people, other than me, why you're fondling a wall. I know. Did but I ditch her or did she ditch me? Interesting question. Mm. We'll have to ask. But when we go as a family unit, yep. so with you, your husband and kids... It was a really different experience. And I've got to say, the Design Museum, which I have been to on many occasions... I have never been. First time. And I've been as a, as a single gal about ta- town wanting to see everything that's going on and I thought this was the most brilliant exhibition for families it was amazing and I didn't expect it to be so we've done a lot of trips to museums because one of the points of living in London with small children is that you have access to all of these amazing kind of opportunities and museums and whatnot Um, and so Abby and I had decided we wanted to go to the Home Futures exhibition um, which is joint between um, the IKEA Museum and the Design Museum um, so we decided we wanted to do that last month, uh, and then schedules being what they are, we decided to to take um, my husband and and the twins. And I have to say, the twins had an amazing time because it was so interactive. It was properly tactile. There was this, and we'll post some photos. Um, but there was there was this great. Um, I'm thinking particularly of the nest. Oh, the nest. There was this, and my daughter's sitting on top of going, "I am an eagle." I've never seen it's like a diplomatic (laughs) um incident of trying to get the children out of the nest because it felt like it was like a metaphor for their late 20s and their three and a half leave the nest (laughs) we'll we'll play this to them on their 18th birthday and say guys you got three years dude their 18th birthday you're already gone oh my gosh you're so harsh I know you know what you need to do? Just downsize the studio. That is the plan. <laughs> Literally, that is the plan. We shouldn't laugh about it we so much. We shouldn't laugh. Um, so I, I came to this exhibition with my slightly cynical, for those of you that heard the IKEA episode, my feeling about uh, that store. IKEA, IKEA everywhere and not a chair to sit on. <laughs> um, however, as you would expect from the Design Museum, this was a, a, sh- a show, an exhibition that was curated fantastically the journey it took you through mm. from so that so we should t- say a little bit more about Ooh. what it is it's oh, my apologies is, so yeah, the home do. futures exhibition is basically about past visions of what the future home will look like 
So it's the 1920s. What did they think people in 2020 would be doing and living and how? Amazing. How would they operate in an urban environment? They were pretty much spot on. They did invent the Roomba. Long you before love, the Roomba was invented. You love the Roomba. I love the Roomba. Do you want to say a bit more about it? Well, I'm still quite sad that I don't live in a house with enough, you know, like, that I don't live in an apartment. Flat surface area. I don't area. live in a house with enough flat surface areas to justify the ownership of a Roomba. So just for those of you who don't know, a Roomba is a remote, I mean, it's not even remote control, it's, it's an autonomous vacuum cleaner. It's an autonomous cleaner. vacuum cleaner. Of which there are many available on the market Tragically, now. Tragically, I don't think it can do stairs. I don't think any of them can do stairs. No. I think some of them can bounce down things, but mm. I don't think it's, it's guaranteed to survive, no. really. No. So it was, there, there was this video being played on a loop of future homes from the 1920s, the 1930s, the 1940s, a really kind of interesting 1950s one where it was like this, this modernist ballet uh, where the woman basically presses a button and here is a cake and then presses another button and here is a stew and then and then goes to play tennis <laughs> because because <laughs> you do because your cake and your stew have emerged from your modular kitchen yes of which your appliances are all integrated which at that time was unthinkable so this all goes back to the idea of the frankfurt kitchen and so the idea that you would have a built-in kitchen that is ergonomically designed to uh kind of give you the, the you know the the working triangles which actually i get very animated about because really it's a working rhomboid tell me it's not fridge sink mm. hob mm. and then where you prepare everyone forgets preparation and you shouldn't, because what everybody says constantly, and we will be talking about this in much more detail next month. When we do our consultation. But what you know, what everybody gets exercised about is, I don't have enough countertop. Yes, Everyone. preparation space is all. Preparation space is absolutely critical, which is why, as you are aware, I'm a huge fan of the induction hub, because it doubles as preparation space, but also the hub. Thus turning a rhomboid into a triangle. Do you know, I feel in the future there are going to be shows that um, have the Rachel theory. <laughs> the rhomboid triangle theory. And then in juxtaposition, the Abigail theory. We'll just call it the, the triangle versus the rhomboid. Snappy. <laughs> yes. I wonder why no one's documented it yet. Um, the, the piece that really interested me was that there was a, there was a study, and it was done in the 1920s, and it was um, the optimization of domestic life a scientific study of how we live and it it actually said how little space can people live in yeah i mean truly when you break people's activities down into the functions of sleeping dressing sitting all of the elements that you do within your home and then you separate out which ones are individual yeah getting changed which ones are communal yeah bearing in mind they were, they were thinking about population growth and i don't think even in the 1920s they got an idea of where the where the population would be now how people could live in cities and there's the most beautiful poster and i regret i didn't take a photo of it and i'm going to see if i can find it and post it on instagram and on our show notes to show all of these little modular spaces of which you could clunk together a little bit like a jigsaw and that would create your minimal or optimal living space that was done in the 1920s and so we've been thinking for a long time about this idea of machines for living 
right? And we've talked yeah. about this before. I think that the issue for me is whether or not that leads to joy. Does that lead to happiness? So optimal does not to me say joyful. I agree completely. And I think when you look at spaces, cities that have really tested the boundaries of minimal living space and I'm thinking here about Hong Kong, a lot of the East Asian cities yeah. where actually, and this particular scientific study from the 1920s, they said 344 square feet is your micro living. For a single person. For a single person. Yeah. Well, you say for a single person, I'd have to test that and see if that was a single bed. Because actually I think as long as, if it fits a double bed, there's no reason why each of those spaces couldn't be used at different times by two different people. But that is a tiny that is very small. amount of space. Um, but yes, could you live in it? Yes. Yep. Would you get joy from living in that space? I would struggle to say so. Now there is, talking about Eastern influence, there is a beautiful YouTube video that we will link to in the show notes, which is an individual, um, an architect in Hong Kong who has made a modular apartment and it is a studio apartment and then all of the walls are on um, rails, on yeah. tracks. Yeah. And you want to get your wardrobe, you open up a piece you close your wardrobe, you move that wall, and lo and behold, behind it is your kitchen, which folds down and acts as this. And the only element that is permanently accessible is the, the loo. loo. Has to be. And we talked about this while we were there, didn't yeah. we? What are the non-negotiables? I need to be able to access that. But Without I mean, having to go through massive permutations of wall space. Exactly so. Um, and I think both of us had the same feeling, which is, yes, you can do this. Technology allows you to achieve mm. this. But neither of us would want to live in that space. No, and I, and I think it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I think that when you're in a small, confined space, you can feel cozy, you can feel at home. Like that We talked about hibernation. You and can, all of those absolutely. Elements. Whereas I think if you're wanting to have big thoughts you need to have slightly so there have been studies which talk which which basically look at um ceiling height and um creative thinking that's really so the higher so so if you've got a higher ceiling then you think kind of slightly bigger that is fascinating and i just and, and it's that kind of thing that you know it's about having the appropriate space for the activity and to think that you can conduct every activity within a single space, to me, seems flawed. It seems limiting. It does. And, I mean, it's interesting. So in, so my husband and I have been talking about when the twins uh, move out when they're 18. When you move into the studio. When we, well, so the double height so, well, so studio, his late, Well, so his, lady, his latest idea is that we will kick the kids out. We will sell the house. We will move to a one-bedroom flat somewhere in central London. And then we'll buy a piece of land and he can go off and build, you know, the dream house in the countryside. Brackets. We both hate the countryside, so I'm not convinced that I understand why this is a thing. Anyway. I think it's just a project, isn't it? Yeah. To get him out from under your feet. Well, this is his idea. Anyway. Um, and, I'm so, and I was sort of saying to him, look, but the issue there is that it'll be feast or famine. So we'll mm. either be living completely on top of one another or we won't see each other neither of these seem like good ideas to me and of course I, I, I completely recognise that I am speaking from an immensely privileged position of even you beginning even to think contemplate this. 
at some point my children will leave home and at some point we will be able to sell our property for fabulous riches in which enable us to have the and and, and in many ways and in many ways this is this is a dream right this isn't necessarily reality um although we have been talking about building a house since then literally the night we met but um that yeah i'm so interested to see the sketches that you did on the napkins Um, the night you met yeah it's sad that we don't still have them I wonder but literally there were I wonder there literally were sketches the night we met I I mean I don't doubt it talking about the house that we I've always dreamed of this kind of house as have I ah but did you think about the and and that's how and that's how you know and what we are on your need to list and what we're on your your nice to list so we both absolutely wanted to have a house which was basically um, based on um, the sort of Roman villa idea yes so the kind of courtyard house so the whole exactly. house is designed around a courtyard yeah we both wanted that definitely um and then that's kind of that's that's iterated yes his his oval library which i'm still yet to be fully convinced by and other things yes many hidden staircases <laughs> oh clearly i just look i'm just gonna say it there's a Medici palace somewhere. There's a Medici palace in this. That is, definitely. That actually, I don't think you need to build this. So I think it exists. Back to the design museum. Um, and, and what's fantastic is this this museum prompted these kind of conversations. Yeah. And a particular piece that caught my attention, bearing in mind that this is this is the past thinking about the future. Yeah. It was saying, what do we have in our homes that take up a certain amount of space that we use for a particular function? To actually have no other function mm. so ooh, they ooh. had this electric kettle we all know what electric kettles look like except for americans because we don't have them what what do you have we don't really have kettles we have microwaves and coffee makers but how how no. do you heat water in the microwave for tea well some people but not mm, not really not even would like- have so you might have a stove top kettle but electric kettles do not exist really wow yeah fact so do you think cookers, or zip taps, that yeah, kind of yeah. instant hot water taps, have they taken off in America? Or is there no desire to have boiling water on, on demand? We're not a tea people, so... I know, but you use boiling water for other things than tea. I know I jumped straight you would to boil, tea. No, but you would boil water for pasta, say, in the pot, on the cooker. Like, on the stovetop, you would just boil the pot of water. Wow. Put a pot of water, bring it to the boil. It takes freaking ages. Yeah, of course it does. No, I know. Okay, I mean, if I moved back to the States, were that to happen, I would need a electric electric kettle now, now that I understand. Um, I do have the email of uh, the managing director of Quicker. I'm quite, I'm quite sure that we could broker it. <laughs> you could hook me up. I'll hook you up. Um, so the piece that particularly caught my attention, English yep. show, yep. Swedish and British. Yeah museum collaboration and it's an electric kettle as we know with um with the element but imagine your basic uh water jug fruit juice jug anything that you put on the table sure let's say that the glass is tempered to be able to take extreme heat Mm. why couldn't you just bung the element of an electric kettle into that into the top of it just an immersible element exactly so wouldn't the risk there be that if when you when you remove the element you could be at serious risk of burning yourself now i'm quite sure the reason that we have dedicated standalone units for Uh things like just boiling water is because of that exact risk (laughs) 
but what it was it was a process of questioning yeah why do we have dedicated items for one singular function well and, this and is that not fundamentally inefficient well this comes back to my kitchen rule which is no single use appliances unless you're using them on a daily basis this is how the toaster and the kettle have made the cut listen to is it the last podcast where i said good sign bad design is if you don't love it, if you don't regularly use it, don't have it. Oh, that was hibernation. That was oh, two yes, podcasts ago. Yes, my apologies. And I was talking about spiralizers. And thigh masters. I do love a thigh master. I'm sticking with that. <laughs> um, so so this exhibition, which is still running. It is still we'll running until the end of March. give links to it. And uh, a, a, a small investment in terms of the ticket price for what there is. And, ooh, and, and children under a certain age certainly the twins go free and i cannot emphasize this enough the twins absolutely you know they're three and a half years old they had a fantastic day out so interactive and that every single room that there was there was an element that they could play on and interact uh, with and so so many museums you go to and you're like i'm really sorry we can't touch that i'm really sorry we can't touch that and this, the, the people like operating the, the 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 people working there kept coming over and saying, Oh no, but they can touch this. Yeah, they can they get can, on that. They can jump on that. They just need, take off the shoes, they'll be absolutely yeah. fine. They had a fantastic day. And what I absolutely love the Jetsons. So the Jetsons is on a TV <laughs> on a loop because of course the Jetsons that the house Modern the future, house, right. Yeah. And I absolutely loved it. And they, they, they had headphones. And the twins had little headphones and they were just watching the Jetsons. And to think that we were exposed to that as children and we weren't thinking about that. It was just another cartoon, right? Yeah. We weren't thinking about the way that they were living. But when you watch it with a critical adult eye, you're like, wow, they were calling a lot of things. Flying cars, not so much. Mm, Fashion. Tragic. Okay, okay. So highly... And the other endorsed. thing I would say is that the, the design museum itself, as a building, as a place to visit, is absolutely worthwhile. Mm. So, I, you know, I, I think... I. I know some, you know, some, some of my design designery friends have been quite dismissive of the uh, of the, the the conversion of the Commonwealth Institute into the Design Museum, but I think it absolutely works as a space. And again, for parents, there is a room which they don't always have um, ex they don't always have activities on for kids, but there's a room that you can always go into with your children. So if you're at the museum and they start having some kind of hysterical fit, you can just take them into this room. And they've got crayons, they've got books, they've got soft furnishings, and you can just take them away and put and, and sit in a room until they calm down. That is invaluable. And knowing that there are places like that that you can visit is really, really helpful. But what I loved about that, bearing in mind those rooms I would avoid like the plague Absolutely. under normal circumstances. Very reasonably. I popped in, had that awkward thing where I kind of had to announce quite loudly, I am with someone, not just a weirdo adult on my own in the kids' room, and got chatting to a lady who was kind of observing the play, making sure everything's okay. And um, your your son was super keen to make uh, an aeroplane because there's this beautiful, beautiful, large format kind of A3 sheet. So it was sheets. an A3 sheet, and he wanted a flying horse. He did want a flying horse, Pegasus. Indeed. As I kept telling him over and over. Um, but these, these large sheets had... Uh, pre-printed uh, images for people to colour in but also the the idea was you colour them in then you cut them out and you assemble them into crowns or flying horses or, or a rocking horse which is what we originally were going to have before it flew it became a pegasus with a very luscious tail why limit yourself indeed 
but what the lady who was organizing it said is actually her space her design on those sheets of paper and she said yeah what we do is she said if we find if we just give a piece of paper and some coloring pens the parents sit on their phone and the children sit and color and that's not interactive she said so what we do is the reason we have scissors and it's about self-assembly is automatically the children need assistance with that which engages the parents and so suddenly the whole family is designing together oh wow which is giving the kids that playtime with their parents which we all know Mm. that's what kids want the parents get an opportunity to cut stuff out and stick it together which kind of everyone gets a bit excited about some quite competitive parents and and everyone it was just there were some mothers taking the coloring in very seriously yes some children are not allowed to color outside the lines today margo was today margo was um coloring something in and she and she was talking to herself as she did she, and i've gone a bit outside the lines but that's okay i love that pep talk i give myself <laughs> but that's that, okay i give myself <laughs> that pep talk in all seriousness today um i have i will not bore you with the finite detail but that because of a risk assessment to do with a piece of public realm furniture we had to design a uh, solution to stop children throwing themselves off it oh dear and i was sketching the solution to this and i was just shading a piece of timber and i went outside the lines and i thought that's okay it's just a sketch that's okay it will be fine i just have to submit it to the building regulators that's okay no one will be upset so there we go see i must have learned it somewhere indeed um so highly i mean this 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 i recommend both the exhibition and the museum as as a really great place for you know normal people and people with children normal people and especially normal people interested in design which is everybody listening to this podcast I would hope let's so. be honest and so that was our that was our main topic and our designing together because i like it when we do a mashup so do i now we did talk last month about having um these th- two things we were going to do our, our consultation with a, a very good friend of rachel's who's going through the process of redesigning her kitchen the and hell, bathroom. really the middle class hell well, yes, and the opportunity to go and see the new urban format IKEA, which I am extremely excited about. And having been to the exhibition, which is co-run between IKEA and the Design Centre, I'm softening. I, well, I'm beginning to think IKEA should just sponsor this podcast because, my goodness, after what it hears me say about it, I'm not quite sure we're going to achieve that. But anyway. I'm, I'm still open to persuasion. So next month we will be um, finally getting my friend Haley on the podcast and we were going to be doing a not quite live, lightly edited design consultation where we will be visiting Haley's apartment and having a look at her kitchen and her bathroom and thinking through how we can design her happiness. We are going to do that and we're going to take lots of photos along the journey yep. to spell that out to you. And having gone to the new urban ikea um, design center i'm so unbelievably excited about this ah i know really i i think i might have to kind of give rachel a pencil to bite on or something to calm herself down there's a two-hour consultation oh my god it's gonna be amazing <laughs> of course it is of it's course everyday it is. design patrick literally my husband literally said to me the other day Oh, I've just read about this new format IKEA. You probably know. I was like, yes, I do. Yes, I know all going, about it. I, do, I know. We have an appointment. We're going. I have an appointment. <laughs> Words tumbling out so quickly. So no much excitement. Understand. So much. Um, also, next month we're going to cover off 
potentially the changing format of how we think about kitchens, dining rooms, and whether we permanently buy them <gasps> or do we rent them as we need them. And this is something that IKEA is trialling. So during this two-hour appointment, I'll be quizzing their staff to see if they know anything about this. I am excited. I'm excited too. Tune in next month for a little bit more Everyday Design. Everyday Design. <laughs>